tuning in to Microbiome Matters, a podcast for healthcare professionals and researchers brought to you by Yakult Science. This podcast aims to share latest research and insights from experts about the science behind our gut microbiome. Hi, I'm Nev. And I'm Brett. And welcome to the Microbiome Matters podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the link between stress, anxiety, and the gut microbiota. And we have with us Dr. Rabia Topin. Dr. Rabia is a gastroenterology registrar in London, UK. She has a special interest in neurogastroenterology, and her research is examining the role of lifestyle factors in the disorders of the gut-brain interaction. She's also a practicing yoga teacher and a cognitive behavioral hypnotherapist, offering mind-body tools for digestive health. Thank you for joining us today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So our first question we have for you, with neurogastroenterology as a subspecialty within gastroenterology that focuses on the gut-brain connection, what made you want to specialise in this medical discipline? You know, sometimes you have to take the road less travelled in order to arrive at the truth. And I suppose truth-seeking is something that we adopt very early on as doctors and researchers. We really want to get to the bottom of the symptoms and diseases that are causing our patients to suffer. Early on in my training as a gastroenterologist, I began to notice that many patients I was seeing in the routine outpatients clinic had a disproportionate level of suffering to the results of their tests. That is, their tests were coming back as normal, and yet they still felt unwell. We now know that this patient cohort constitutes approximately a third of all the patients that we as gastroenterologists see in our clinic, and it reflects the prevalence of the disorders we're going to discuss in the general population. But yet it's still the case that when we don't fully understand or don't have objective evidence for a symptom, we label it as psychosomatic. In other words, we refer to when physical symptoms arise and are influenced by the mind as the area that we don't really fully appreciate. So I found myself sufficiently intrigued (laughs) that there is further complexity, you know, within this cohort to be discovered. And I feel that, you know, particularly because of the way that we have been set up to work as doctors, which is excellent for acute problems, but not so good for chronic problems, that we are in a situation where we do need to go down different avenues of discovery. I tend to reflect on this in that mainstream medicine um, has martyred certain organs to particular specialties, right? I mean, if you have a heart problem, you see a cardiologist. If you have a gut problem, you see a gastroenterologist. Um, But it turns out that that system tends to segregate symptoms to those organs as well, when in fact, every organ is in cross-communication with one another all of the time. And so... I suppose you could say that I wanted to specialize in this crossover because it made sense that there was some further truth here to be discovered in this group of patients, particularly with chronic gastrointestinal disorders and certainly where first-line tests don't have all the answers. Oh, that's really great to hear about your journey and how you got into specializing in neurogastroenterology. 
And I know you mentioned about the cross-communication between different organs, and that's exactly what we're going to get to in this question. So recently, there's been a lot of buzz around the gut-brain axis. Could you briefly explain what it is and what we currently know about the role of gut microbiota within this axis? Yes, there certainly has been a lot of buzz, hasn't there? I think it's because we are growing in our appreciation of the way that this cross-communication between organs is taking place. And it's probably also because we're a generation of foodies and our relationship to food, but also the planet, our environmental consciousness is rising and growing in popularity. And so we acknowledge more and more that it's a window into our gut health as well. So to give a really simple definition of the gut-brain axis, it's the bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain. And this occurs via three key other systems within the body. The first is the hypothalamic pituitary axis, the HPA axis. The second is our immune system, of which approximately 70% is contained within the GI tract. And the third is our autonomic nervous system, or our ANS. And the fourth really is, of course, the gut microbiota, because microbes and their metabolites speak directly to our immune cells and our nerve cells, not to mention that they're productive of hormones. So what's really interesting to me is that 80% of the communication along the gut-brain axis is from gut to brain. That is the vagus nerves, which are the principal component of the parasympathetic nervous system, are mixed fiber nerves, and they're composed of 80% afferent fibers and 20% efferent fibers. So most of that communication is bottom up. And because of the role of our vagus nerves in interoceptive awareness, they are able to sense the metabolites of the microbiota through chemoreceptors on their afferent fibers and transfer this information from the gut to the central nervous system where it's integrated in what is called the central autonomic network, which then in turn generates an adapted response to that signaling. And so what we have is an understanding that microbiota metabolites such as serotonin, dopamine, GABA, acetylcholine, they are neuroactive compounds. They're active and they affect the afferent fibers of the vagus nerve. So they directly interact with our enteric nervous system, the so-called the gut's brain, and the communication is spread via the vagus to the rest of the nervous system. And so It stands to reason that if there's an imbalance in our microbiota, what we have termed dysbiosis, then these signals will essentially be like static along a phone line and can arise or exacerbate in conditions such as irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, for example. Thank you so much for explaining the gut-brain axes. And that's a great analogy of the static on the phone lines as well, Um, really creates that imagery of how it works. Without understanding of the gut-brain axes, do you expect we will see changes in the clinical management of certain gastrointestinal conditions in the near future? And, or, or is that happening already? And if so, which conditions and how is it changing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are already seeing changes. And there's a whole arena of gastrointestinal conditions named after this. And 
it's the so-called disorders of gut-brain interaction. So they are well-defined by the Rome 4 criteria, the most common of which I've already mentioned is IBS, but the conditions span every area of the GI tract from the esophagus down to the rectum. They used to be called um, functional gastrointestinal disorders, referring to the fact there's an issue with the function rather than the structure of the gut. But the Rome Foundation changed this um, to reflect the etiology as belonging to the gut-brain axis, which I think was a really positive move, along with our eradication of the word psychosomatic. We're moving towards a much more mechanistic understanding of where these disorders arise from. And yet the application of our understanding of the gut-brain axis is not limited to these disorders of gut-brain interaction because take inflammatory bowel disease, for example, IBD, and even typical proven gastroesophageal reflux disease or GORD. Patients often have GI symptoms despite being on the correct pharmaceutical remedies for the aforementioned organic illnesses. And I just feel that without the knowledge of how to manage the aspects that are related to the gut-brain axis, you know, even a gastroenterologist or a GP can become stuck because they feel they've optimized the management of the organic condition, but the patient is still suffering. So what's more is that research has advanced so much over the last five to 10 years that there are plenty of management options available now for these conditions and more emerging all the time. So in fact, the recent BSG guidelines, um, this in 2021 for IBS have recently been published and they lay out a very clear idea of how to manage it. Lifestyle factors also play a major role um, and that includes the influence of stress and anxiety. So those are always worth taking a look at. Well, it's great to hear how we can use our understanding of the gut-brain axis in the clinical management of certain gastrointestinal conditions. Moving on to stress and anxiety, we know that both of these are linked to some negative health outcomes. Could you elaborate on how stress and anxiety can impact the gut and the gut microbiota in particular? I always begin by emphasizing that stress is a whole body response. Because I feel the step that we need to take is to understand that, you know, that stress is not something felt or solely generated in the mind, but has a host of physical reactions in the body. So, for example, the release of corticotrophin releasing factor or CRF acts on G protein coupled CRF receptors located in the brain and the GI tract to increase intestinal permeability and modify the gut microbiota composition. So the impact of our stress hormones are felt directly at the barrier of the gut and within the microbial communities. Intestinal permeability, or what has colloquially become known as leaky gut, and dysbiosis are both integral factors involved in the pathophysiology of IBS and even IBD. Many studies have demonstrated also the impact of chronic early life stress on the microbiota and on the autonomic nervous system, which later leads to the promotion of what we call visceral hypersensitivity. 
visceral hypersensitivity is defined as an altered or heightened sensitivity of the bowel to normal or low-level sensations. And this really is the key aspect of disorders of the gut-brain interaction and the subject of much research that gives us an understanding of how mood symptoms such as stress and anxiety really mirror in the symptom presentation. So for example, one study published in GUT in 2004 demonstrated the impact of acute mental stress, experimentally induced, on visceral perception. So researchers looked at the impact of stress before, during, and after a mental stress exercise. And they looked at rectal sensory thresholds, as well as plasma levels of CRF, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and so forth. And they looked at that in IBS patients and control subjects. What they found is that during the period of stress, rectal sensory thresholds to pain were increased in the control subjects. That is, they could tolerate more. But in IBS subjects, the thresholds remain the same. They didn't have the resilience effectively to rise to the challenge. Whereas after the stressful episode, in IBS patients, their thresholds were lowered. Interestingly, from a hormonal perspective, the basal CRF levels were lower in patients at baseline and increased significantly during stress in, in IBS patients, but not in controls. So studies like this and many more look at the influence of all these different systems within the gut-brain connection, and they are able to map each area of effects of that on, on the patient's response and on the symptoms. Now, specifically to discuss studies in relation to the impact of stress on the microbiota, there are many more studies, interestingly, looking at the impact of physiological stress. So sleep disruption, to take one example. And psychological stress is something that really has taken place far more in animal you know, rat models than it has in, in patients. But to comment on, on, on one study, in 2016, there was a study on fecal microbiota transplantation, where they took samples from depressed patients, where they characterized those samples by decreased microbial richness and diversity, and implanted them into microbiota-depleted rats and found that behavioral and physiological features that were characteristic of depression were induced in the recipient rats. And that included anhedonia, for example, so a loss of interest and anxiety-like behaviors, as well as alterations in tryptophan metabolism. So that study reminds me of the studies taking place in obesity with rats, um, where the microbiota of an obese rat was planted into a slim rat and um, the weight was transferred. So in general, just to recap the underlying mechanisms for the listeners that link the microbiota to stress. So the first area is in relation to neuroendocrine hormones, which directly modulate microbial growth and activity, and they're secreted by the intestinal cells in the GI tract in response to stress. I think the second thing is that stress-induced changes can impact the intestinal barrier that I mentioned earlier, and that coincides with changes in the intraluminal microenvironment, which in turn impacts the gut microbiota. And then lastly, to mention the changes that stress has on the immune system of the gut, so that is the gut-associated lymphoid tissue, which directly then alters gut microbiota composition 
and function. So although I would say that much of the evidence on the role of gut microbiota in stress-related disorders originates from rat models, and we still have some way to go, um, findings from recent human studies are coming to the forefront. And so I think that we have some way to go, but certainly um, there is undeniable underlying mechanistic links, as I've just described. It's fascinating to hear about the research and the relationship between the gut microbiota and mental health conditions like stress and anxiety. It really sounds like a promising area of upcoming research now. From a clinical perspective, how do we raise awareness about the importance of a healthy gut microbiota within the context of mental health? It's a great question. I think we have to begin with education. Yeah, if our patients do not appreciate that stress is a whole body response, that it occurs in our physiology, I feel that they won't really know how it can be managed in a whole body or a holistic way. And I think this starts with really simple explanations, you know, like, for example, how do you feel when you eat chocolate? Okay, (laughs) do you feel great? Yeah, why is that? And then as a clinician or a researcher, you know, in dialogue with patients, you can go on to explain that, you know, the cocoa bean contains bioactive amines such as tryptophan, which are precursors for serotonin. And did you know that somewhere in the region of 80% of your serotonin is produced by your gut microbes? And this kind of paves the way to discussing the influence of not only food, but also mood on symptoms. I think the other thing I ought to mention is the impact of probiotics, prebiotics, you know, on stress and anxiety, of course. So we know that stress-induced changes in the HPA axis and the autonomic nervous system display sensitivity to probiotic interventions. And probiotics have been demonstrated to restore colonic tight junctions and the integrity of those tight junctions in mice models. But there are two specific probiotic combinations that have been studied since, you know, early 2011 was probably the seminal study. Um, So these two individual strains, I mean, we could get quite overwhelmed with individual strains. I know even as a researcher, I do. Um, But interestingly, a combination of um, Lactobacillus helveticus roselle 52 and Bifidobacterium longum roselle 175 has now been supported by five clinical and nine preclinical studies as showing a beneficial impact on certainly psychological measures of stress and anxiety in rat models and also um, stress induction in healthy volunteers. So I think there may come a time when combined with the education, as I described earlier, that the microbiome becomes viewed as a potential biomarker for mood disorders, you know, of which we only really have psychological questionnaires at the moment. And yet there's still some way to go regarding personalized medicine, you know, saying which particular strain is lacking for that particular individual and therefore should be supplemented. So from a clinical perspective, it's important to keep an open mind. And I often advise patients to take probiotics for a three-month trial and observe the effects themselves on their mood, considering how personalized I think this area really is. Thank you for reminding us about how important education is, educating patients about the benefits of food on mood and symptoms, and also telling us a bit more about probiotics and the research around that and the gut-brain axis. Um, We know that you're an advocate for using medicine in combination with lifestyle interventions for digestive health. 
Can you tell us about some of these interventions? Yes, of course. So I feel that the discipline of lifestyle medicine, which historically has been done very well by our general practitioners, has been somewhat excluded from secondary care and for good reason. I mean, we don't necessarily have time in our outpatient consultations to cover the full extent of lifestyle medicine, but it's an exceptionally valid and also a really useful segue into the way that individual patients can self-manage their disorders of gut-brain interaction. And this is because the so-called lifestyle pillars of which I could list off, so I would say diet, sleep quality, exercise, relaxation techniques, and I would add in psychobiotics or supplements, they can be approached in a really systematic way in a clinical consultation. My research looks at a few of these in different disorders of gut-brain interaction, but it's early days to discuss any specific outcomes. I'm very pleased to say that there are many supporting studies, and fortunately, these factors have made their way into the recent guidelines I mentioned earlier surrounding IBS, for example. Thank you for that. Um, And we'll be keeping an eye out for your research as well to read about the outcomes of that. So cognitive behavioural therapy is also becoming increasingly popular as a treatment method for gastrointestinal conditions like IBS. I'm aware that you offer cognitive behavioural hypnotherapy sessions for patients experiencing IBS or other gut health issues. Could you tell us a bit more about this treatment? How does it work? And is there any scientific evidence behind it? So cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT, and hypnotherapy are distinct psychological interventions that have been extensively proven to be effective for disorders of the gut-brain connection, and in particular IBS. Um, A recent systematic review in 2020 by Black et al. um, did a a review of psychological interventions and um, concluded the efficacy in long-term follow-up of CBT and gut-directed hypnotherapy. Secondly, um, they're both supported by the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, so they're NICE approved, so we can feel free to refer our patients to these interventions in the UK. And they've made their way into clinical guidelines, so the IBS gut guidelines and disorders of gut-brain interaction in general. So to briefly talk about each of these two psychological interventions, because it's important that we understand sort of the distinctions between the two and also in order to choose when we might study them as researchers or refer our patients to them as clinicians. So CBT um, is, of course, cognitive and behavioral therapy, and it's the idea that our thoughts and our behavior are intertwined in a constant cycle. Our thoughts influence our behavior, our behavior influences our thoughts. But of course, the other arms to that picture or the pieces to that puzzle include our physical sensations and our feelings. So there's this interconnected web between all of these, and we only have to intervene at the level of the thoughts or at the level of the behavior in order to make changes. Now, for for a long time, this has been proven to work in face-to-face, but the the ACTIB trial in 2019 put telephone and web-based CBT on the map. And it was a multi-center RCT demonstrating efficacy at 12 months follow-up compared to treatment at usual. So what's really fantastic is that now we can provide these treatments to A, groups of people instead of individuals, which is much more cost effective, but also via web-based and telephone tools. And we can do that with confidence. 
Now, hypnotherapy um, is somewhat the dark horse, I think, of psychological intervention. And the reason for that is because it shares stigma with the functional gastrointestinal disorders, you know, the idea of hypno- this idea of stage hypnosis, the likes of Darren Brown and Paul McKenna mean that we think of hypnotherapy as stage hypnosis. And we have the stigma attached to the idea that you're put into a trance-like state and lose control somehow. And so patients and clinicians alike um, represent maybe even an unconscious bias or a reluctance to refer. So I wanted to, to say that, you know, The word hypno comes from the Greek hypnos, which means to sleep. And that even compounds further stigma related to it because you think you're going to sleep. But actually, it's an abbreviation of the word neurohypnotism, which means sleep of the nervous system. And so the idea with this therapy is that you take the nervous system, you downregulate to a state in which it is susceptible to positive suggestibility. Um, So that's James Braid's definition, and the research in the area of disorders of gut-brain interaction dates back to 1984 with Professor Peter Walwell, who did the first ever trial in hypnotherapy and IBS. So over time, to date, there's over 12 randomized control trials um, looking at the effect of hypnotherapy in IBS, not to mention other disorders of gut-brain interaction. And it's incredibly well-founded and has been compared to treatment as usual to the low FODMAP diet. Um, So a very effective um, technique that I would encourage people to refer. Um, And with both of these things, a lack of practitioners is probably our biggest barrier. Oh, that's really interesting to hear about how psychological interventions are now being used as a treatment method for gastrointestinal disorders. And also, thank you for clearing up some of the misconceptions around cognitive behavioral hypnotherapy. Um, Moving on, we know that you're also a yoga instructor and you also offer breathwork coaching. How does this fit into the holistic approach of maintaining gut health, but also mental well-being? Yes, so the nice thing about things like, well, breathwork, for example, is that it is just so easily accessible. Um, Of course, we've got lots of evidence around CBT and hypnotherapy, um, but it is, as I mentioned, quite challenging to find appropriate healthcare practitioners to deliver those interventions. Breathwork, on the other hand, is something so simple and so effective because it has a physiological influence on vagal nerve activity. So I would start by saying that the research um, is out, the jury is out on the exact influence of um, breathwork techniques. However, the research is building and it physiologically, the pattern and the mechanism is very easily explained. So Our breathing has a direct mirroring effect on our heart rate through something we know, which is sinus arrhythmia. And as you move through the stages of sinus arrhythmia, you you can then modulate the rate, rhythm and depth of breathing to influence the heart rate further. um, The surrogate marker of which is heart rate variability or HRV. So that describes the beat to beat variability or the R to R interval variability in successive beats. Now, research has shown that patients with IBS and indeed IBD have low HRV at baseline, and that reflects low vagal tone. So through slowing down of the breath, as well as extension of the exhalation portion of the breath, these are two aspects that have been shown to upregulate vagal tone 
by increasing HRV. And therefore, there's a very physiological biomarker that we have to measure the influence of breathing on vagal tone. Now, what is not known is the impact of that on symptoms, also how long you should do breath work and how often and so on. But hopefully some of the research that we're doing in our lab will progress towards those answers. And to briefly mention yoga, I mean, yoga is breath work combined with motion. So it touches on, again, a very physiological fact that the gut is not existing in isolation from our surrounding muscles, our anterior abdominal muscles, our diaphragm. So our muscles, our connective tissue, our fascia are in connection with our abdominal wall and, and the gut. And research by the Spanish group has looked into this connection between muscle tone and symptoms of bloating, which has been very excellent research that um, hopefully is going to continue to come to the forefront um, in the coming years. You've talked in detail about the connection between the mind and body. It's been great to hear about that connection and the relationship between the two. What practical advice would you give to people who are finding it difficult to strike a balance between physical and mental well-being while leading a fast-paced lifestyle? Great question. I will I will say I think I probably now talking to us as doctors, researchers, students as well as to the patients and the um, clients that we eventually see. And I'm going to start by saying that if I was to give some advice and the practical advice in particular, probably number one is to dissolve the divide. So the idea between that the mind and the body sit separate has led to this segregation in the way that we deliver services. And so a reintegration through the idea that stress is a whole body response is probably the first step to notice in yourself and then for patients. So I think the first piece of advice would be to try and dissolve that divide in your mind so that you can start to offer more holistic, integrated care. The second thing, which is far more practical, is to develop what's been known as micro meditations. So it's often the case that we feel we don't have time of day to contribute to mind body therapies. But, you know, research has shown that several times a day for one to three minutes, engaging in something like breath work or meditation or mindfulness has a huge impact on the tapestry of the rest of our day and the way that we can start to integrate. And I would say the last thing is to examine our relationship to productivity. We are in, you mentioned the fast paced modern lifestyle, our relationship to productivity means that we constantly want to be productive. So I would say that find something you love um, or someone you connect with and that 20 minute activity, whether it's exercise, whether it's a nap, whether it's, you know, yoga or breath work or whether it's something entirely different, that 20 minutes and that time, that permission will lead to hours of productivity in the rest of your day and the rest of the patient's day. So I think that in summary, dissolving the divide, developing micro meditations and examining your relationship to productivity are all ideas that in a fast paced modern lifestyle we can incorporate in order to reconnect the mind and body and the gut brain connection. Oh, those are some really great practical tips and I'm sure our CP audience will find that really helpful and really easy to integrate into their lifestyle as well. Thank you for speaking to us about stress, anxiety and its relation to the gut microbiota and gut health. It was great to learn about the gut-brain axis, but also some of the lifestyle interventions that are targeting the gut and the brain. 
and can help improve both digestive health but also mental well-being. Uh, but before we finish this episode, there's one last question we'd like to ask you. What's one thing that you do to look after your gut? <laughs> Great question. Um, I would say for me, obviously breath work and yoga because it is what I teach. <laughs> but for me, I've become very interested in circadian rhythms. So the influence of the timing of meals and the timing of sleep and the effect that has personally on my body. So if I was to say one thing I do for my own gut health, it would be to try to go to sleep at the same time roughly every day and wake up at the same time roughly every morning, even at weekends, <laughs> because I really do appreciate how the gut follows rhythm. You know, the gut likes rhythm. And, you know, that's why most of us open our bowels first thing in the morning, because there's a rhythmicity to the body. And so I just try to respect that rhythm as well um, and be regular in the way that I live my lifestyle factors. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. For more information and to sign up for future episodes of our Microbiome Matters podcast, go to yakult.co.uk forward slash HCP. Thank you.